I wish I knew that when I was starting out. Sound familiar? Throughout our careers as artists, we're hopefully continually learning about better ways to do things. Inevitably, we learn a tip or trick or figure out how to work through a tough circumstance and think back to a situation where we could have benefited from that knowledge. I realize more than ever, it's super important for me to gain the trust of the person who employs me or pays me or seeks my advice or consult. It's important for them to trust me just on an integrity level and then trust that whatever work I'm supposed to provide creatively is going to be 100% solid. This is fashion designer Lila Tadros. Lila and I talk about her experience navigating some of the encounters that are common across any field where you'll be interacting with teammates, clients, or stakeholders. Some of this might reinforce how you're doing things now, or maybe you'll pick up a new tip for the future. I'm Brandon Recton. And this is The Creative Struggle. So, Lila, you have been in the fashion industry since the 90s. You went to school at Parsons, and then you worked for Levi's and Hollister and Abercrombie. And then you started your own business selling and designing leather goods. So I want to talk about all these things, but I want to start from the beginning. What kind of got you interested in that path? Well, when I was a kid, I was always drawing. So that was my thing. It came easy. I drew everything. Uh, I drew cereal boxes. I drew cartoons. I would sit here in the house and draw all kinds of stuff by myself. It was fun to me, a little introverted. And I was the school artist. Um, And I knew at some point I had to choose a career path, and I chose design. I chose fashion design. Did you ever think of doing something else with illustration, or was design like the obvious choice for you? Design was the choice that I made when I was in high school, but when I went to college, your first year in art school, which you probably know, so you go for a Bachelor of Fine Art, and the first year is uh, more like a general art. So you take drawing comp, color theory, all those things before you go deep into your discipline. So the first year I actually did consider becoming a fine artist. I actually thought about the idea of going an extra year um, studying so I could be a fine art teacher, um, preparing for gallery shows and all those sorts of things. And the reason why I had thought of it that year was because my first year teachers were um, prominent artists in New York City. So my drawing comp teacher, who was at the time very well-known, showing in galleries, uh, I had done really well in her class, and she was sort of encouraging me, along with another drawing teacher, to consider the possibilities of going into fine art. So at that time, I did entertain for a couple of months. You know, could this be a possibility for me? Could this be something I could pursue instead of a practical design? What shifted your interest toward a more practical design? My dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he basically had said, you know, the two things aren't so far away, but one, you're probably more guaranteed to make a salary. Mm-hmm. And the other one is going to be more difficult for you. So and he, he sort of made the scenario, and I think it was prudent. He said, in both cases, you have to learn to sell your ideas and then the things you create. And he said, but it seems like in the design realm, you will be more 
uh, schooled or better schooled to do that. Mm. So that was really why I picked design. As you transitioned into that, did you find it more and more interesting? I was. I found it more challenging because in in fashion design it was super competitive because of the school I went to. So I was a typical college student. I started school at 18 and did my four years. At Parsons, you had, at the time when I was in school, you had people who had already had their masters from Ivy League schools. They were super wealthy, um, super bright. And it, this was just their segue from finance or law or whatever. They decided that they wanted to be fashion designers. So by my sophomore year, the people in your class were 25, 30-year-old, super accomplished, super smart, um, and you were, it was competitive. I graduated my class, there was 100 of us. So um, you wanted to be the top person. We had huge forums where people would show their work to designers at the time, and you wanted to be someone that people said, wow, your stuff's really great. So I found it really competitive, and I found it, I was intimidated because because of the difference between me and so many of those people. I had grown up here. Um, some of these people, you know, came from Italy, and their parents owned islands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were wearing minks and stuff, and I was me. So I was a little intimidated, not only, not really so much on ability, but more on the what seemed like the worldliness of these other people. Okay. They were so, um, maybe some of them spoke five languages and their father owned bridges in mm. <laughs> different areas. Did you see that reflected in their work or was it just a purely outside? Like a It was appearance? outside. As, yeah. as time went on and you got through the classes and the courses, it didn't translate necessarily. Mm. Not always. Right. It didn't translate in their uh, ability. Mm. So that, you know, but initially when you're young, super intimidating. Yeah, of course. And I wanted to do well. I wanted to excel. So it, it was good. It pushed me. I worked hard. College for me was never, there was never any spring break. It wasn't, uh, you know, let's go party. I didn't have that kind of college. I had a serious, intense time where I really wanted to excel. Mm. And did you do, so through the summers, did you do internships? In the summers, I usually got like summer jobs, and they were totally different than the work I was doing at school. There was a summer arts program here at Rutgers called Summer Arts Institute, mm-hmm. and I was a teaching assistant there. So I would be able to go there and spend five weeks there. I would uh, be an assistant under a sculpture teacher or a painting teacher, and so I would learn along with high school age students, but I would be more of a teaching assistant. And that was cool because I got to be more in the fine art realm Mm -hmm. and I was getting paid. Yeah. So. So still combining some of those earlier interests with what you're doing currently. Yep. So how was it after, right after school, because that seems to be another like uh, difficult transition is from graduation to like your first job. Uh, how was that for you? It was difficult. I had uh, I had an opportunity to work for a big company, which is the company that owns Macy's, basically, and work on uh, private label design. So basically, doing their, you know, hidden label menswear. So it's a great job. 
it's a good starting salary, but I wasn't into it. Mm. I wasn't into it. So I had a rocky time my first two years, I'd say after, maybe two, three years after college. I did that maybe six months. And then I got a job working for these designers. They were three design director level people who had day jobs. One was at Izod, one was at like Ann Taylor, and I forgot where the third one was from, but they had their own little label that they were starting and they had a shop in the West Village and I was working with them. And that was amazing and I learned a lot and they were great, I didn't make as much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they couldn't afford to give me a lot of money, but I learned a lot about what their struggles were because they were working for big labels and then sort of on the sly, doing this thing of their own. Mm -hmm. So they would discuss, you know, the corporate stuff that they endured, and then they would come out, and we would work together, and they would sort of, you know, tell me, be careful of this, or be careful of that, and watch out for this. And I was doing really practical things, going to the factories with them, you know, buying materials with them, drawing for them. So I was really learning how they were developing a small business in New York City, which was cool. There does seem to be a big divide between working for like a corporate company doing less interesting work and then working for like a more private company doing more interesting work. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the pros and cons or how you felt about that? You know, from this point of view, looking back, when you work for a big company, there's great advantages, right? Your salary is going to be better. There's more opportunity for you to grow. You're going to get benefits and all those things. Um, in the in design-specific roles or clothing design-specific roles, you have these teams of people who support you, right? So you're the designer. You get to whatever, design shirts and pants. You have um, a fabric team that helps you isolate certain fabrics, made sure that they're the way you want them to feel or they're going to perform the way you want them to. You have a pattern making team who helps you get the look just right and can communicate that right for mass production. You have a merchandising team who makes sure that everything falls uh, financially into the right realm so that they can sell it. So when I look back at that and if I look back and say working for a large corporation was all I did, I think I wouldn't have learned all the little details of being a designer mm-hmm. um, that would help someone to move into a situation where they're going to start their own business. Right. So do you feel like it's good to have a combination of both? Because the smaller one ended up forcing you to learn a lot of stuff that other teams would have taken care of? Yeah, definitely. I think it also helps you when you work for the smaller one. When I did go to the larger companies, you're that much more valuable, right? So it's like, if you're, if as a graphic designer, you're working with someone and they're asking you to make a certain design for them and they understand the mechanics of how you work, makes it that much easier for you to explain or to sort of get their buy-in on why you did what you did. Mm-hmm. So everything sort of can move faster, better, right? You can get the best thing and in less time, everyone's sort of happier because you're all talking from the same point of view, mm-hmm. same point of reference. It's definitely helpful. Do you feel like collaboration at a bigger company is 
more conducive to coming up with more ideas or is it easier to, is it like steering a ship and working with a smaller company, you can be more agile? I think, I think it depends on the company and I think it depends on your position in the company and not just a uh, position, let's say in a hierarchy, but if you're trusted, right, you have to gain trust. But I think in some companies, like let's say Levi, where the design team is pretty large. And there's there was a certain kind of collaboration just within design. And then depending on which area you worked in, there was another collaboration with your merchandising team. So all if all of those things are working well and there's a good trust and and that comes with hit, that comes with some time and history mm-hmm. and maybe some trial and error, then collaboration can be great and it could be fun. Um, if any one of those components is slightly off, it could be very difficult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I say slightly off, uh, personalities aren't gelling, goals are different, vision is different, or lack of, yeah. then everybody can turn, you know, turn sour quickly. So collaboration is important on a creative front because I think, too, a lot of creative people want to feel... Um, that they're contributing, that people respect and like their ideas. I do feel like in the uh, clothing design industry, there's a little more sensitivity because people talk a lot about taste level. And some people might say you have one or you don't. And some people would say you can train to have a certain taste level. So those are also certain kind of collaborations that I think can be great or go south quickly (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah there's two things that you mentioned that i want to explore like a little bit more one is gaining trust because i think that that's a really important topic that is invaluable to learn um, when you're especially when you're starting out in design or or any any type of field where you're going to be working with either teams or people that you need like kind of stakeholders in a project what i've seen especially in like uh younger designers and artists is like well, I've, I've graduated, I have a skill set, and therefore people should trust me. But there's a lot more to people than that. And it's like, so there's it, gaining trust is a process. What is your experience with like how you've gone about like gaining the trust of people involved in a project? Well, I think, I think what you said uh, can sort of lead me in my answer. If I look back post-college, right, graduated college, and probably why a lot of people have that rocky time, you do have that opinion. You're young. You've spent hours. You can draw really fast. You know what you want. You have all these um, strong opinions and motivations behind everything and maybe convictions on why you've chosen this creative path or not. But you are not yet maybe fully equipped to enroll somebody else <laughs> in uh-huh. believing that about you. So I can look back and say, yeah, that was problematic. It's it's problematic because people don't always view you the way you think that they do. And when you're younger, you don't think that. You're not thinking that other people can't see what you do. You maybe have a more narrow view. Not everybody, but I think it's common when you're young. Mm-hmm. At this point, looking back, I see that clearly. I see that I have to... You know, today, with whatever, how many years experience, I realize more than ever, 
it's super important for me to gain the trust of the person who employs me or pays me or seeks my advice or consult. It's important for them to trust me just on an integrity level and then trust that whatever work I'm supposed to provide creatively is going to be 100% solid. And that, I think, is something that you have to prove how you engage with them, what you promise up front, let's say verbally, and then your work has to do a lot of that. When I was younger, I hated the idea that you had to discuss the work because I was visual. Mm-hmm. It was like, can't you see it? <laughs> Here it is. Right. Why do you want me to tell you anything more? And that's silly because you do have to. And over the years, I really admired a lot of people, especially in visual art, in design, who can articulate why something is good, specify maybe five different distinctions. This is why it's good, and also specify why it's not. Mm. Where everyone can go, oh, I see. And actually, I'll tell you, from a design standpoint, as a, from a clothing standpoint, when I worked at Abercrombie, the CEO would review our proposals for design. And he, I really was amazed, he would find the most minute thing and the whole room would be like 50 people in the room would be stumped. And it became a game to me of like, what is going to get him? Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to find it before he does. So somebody might present a print. And it would take time for you to identify, but he would always get it. And I think the reason he would always get it was because he worked with hundreds of people. He saw hundreds of proposals, hundreds of failures, and hundreds of successes. So he could. his eye was so attuned. And I remember one time we were presenting prints for swim shorts. And so there's all these prints everywhere. And uh, I had been in the company maybe two months. And he said, the guy comes out, a model comes out in this short, and he's like, it's nice, but there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with this. And everybody was like, and I'm thinking, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then he had this also uncanny way. He's like, Lila, what is it? And I'm like, it's too small. <laughs> Just came out of And he's like, exactly. It needs to be big. <laughs> and so he had these little, and those are little nuances that you learn as a clothing designer, even if you style yourself or something, right? Little things that can make you that much better or you know that looks so much cooler when you did that so I think that is a that across design and art those little nuances that you see things that you have to learn you look at things over and over and over and make mistakes over and over and over and over again and then your eye becomes attuned this one is right and that's wrong never do this always do that Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that that's, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I think the, the reason that you kind of hinted at that, like, when you're starting out, you don't want to do that so much is because you do want people to just look at it and be like, I get it. And, but realistically, you do a lot of times need to almost sell it a little bit, you know, and point out the value in it. Um, and I don't think that there's, there's really anything wrong with that. Um, 
because it is like it it is a really good skill to pick up, uh, and also the the idea where you mentioned too, like pointing out things that are wrong with it too, like not trying to like gloss over, be like, look, this is maybe a weak part of it, but if you have an explanation for why it's that way, um, I think that that's also equally valuable. Yep. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was uh, the idea of taste and whether you you have it or don't like it's something that you're born with or not. Um, this seems like this could be like a very subjective discussion. Um, but do you feel like that's something that over time, do you feel like it's something that is, uh, like kind of like an absolute truth or does it exist in pockets? Like you can understand what is, what is good and bad in a certain context. And maybe if you were in a different context, it would be different. I guess I would say there is a good or a bad. I don't want to say it like that because... <laughs> what would be a softer way to say that? Something I guess similar? it would be subjective. You know, maybe uh, maybe the gene that is for the more rock and roll guy and maybe the gene that is for the more um, yacht riding, loafer wearing <laughs> yeah. guy. Uh-huh. So, uh, I mean, that, it's just, that becomes a style thing. Mm-hmm. But even in those even in those pockets, there's good and bad, right? There's mm-hmm. this, there's super cool gene for the rocker, and then the like the quintessential gene for the guy with the blue blazer and the loafers on the yacht. Mm-hmm. So even in those little pockets, there's probably best and worst, for lack of a different word. Mm-hmm. But that that's also I think that's a taste level thing. Um, but I think it's also something that you can learn. Right, you can't always know the best thing until you see the worst thing, and just like photographers, right? Photographers will take thousands of pictures, and they might get three, and it's only because they took the thousand, right, that they found out that mm-hmm. the third one. And obviously, as time goes on, their lens is more honed in because they know they're going to get the better shot a certain way than if they tried all the others. So I guess that brings me back to the taste level thing. You can learn it. Mm-hmm. You just have to expose yourself to it enough and make some errors and then start to compare. Well, this one is cool because of this and this one is bad because of that. I think when you learn it like that and don't sort of say you have it or you don't, you'll actually be better because you'll be able to make a distinction to someone else. This is really great because of these details or these specifics and this is really terrible because of this and I think when you approach design or art in that way it becomes um, less subjective and then everyone can sort of work out it takes all the personal stuff out of it Mm -hmm. and it becomes all about this thing being built or created so one of the keys maybe is pointing in a subjective conversation, pointing to things that are more objective. And that way it's not like whether you like blue or green, it's more like this specific thing is going to work for this circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. Can you think of one of the big lessons that you've learned? I think the, the biggest lesson, and it was a process, was learning how to speak about those things. So initially, it was harder, right? Because you, when you're in school, well, when I was in school, we would have discussions about stuff, 
but it was really subject to the class the things that were going on in the class. It wasn't necessarily subject to a brand or uh, a large population of consumer, even though we were idealizing all the time, who's this consumer, who's this person. So I think the, and the best thing, the hard thing and the best thing was to learn over time how to communicate those things. And then always challenging because not everybody that you're speaking to understands that communication you know it's it's not like you know the ceo will say the print's too it's too small that's the problem and some people are like oh yeah and some people are like what do you mean it's too small it looks great mm-hmm. you know what i mean so so there's there's two things one is can i communicate and two does the person um i'm speaking to are they receiving mm-hmm. so that goes back to a relationship and trust because I know that if, if I trust someone, have a good relationship, and they tell me something and I'm still not, it's not registering for me, I'm going to keep listening and trying hard to understand them because I want to, right? So th- I think that's a constant lesson. Mm-hmm. Have you ever come up against a circumstance where you couldn't get to that place with somebody? Yeah. It's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's ugly. It could be ugly, especially in in my industry. It has happened, and it's unfortunate that it happens. But uh, I think in those cases, um, you have to just do your best. You have to be honest about your position, and you have to be honest about what your goal is. Um, and I think sometimes people have their own goal. When you work for a brand, the goal is to achieve whatever it is that they ask you to do. And some I have had, unfortunately, a a couple instances where um you know people get into power positions and that's difficult it's a difficult thing because the work is at stake and i think generally looking back at my career we have pretty amazing jobs and so the idea that anybody would want to um, make things negative or difficult is sort of crazy because we have great jobs we have you know we make all the places I've worked, we've made great things. It's generally been a positive group of people, but there have been one or two that make it really difficult. Do you have any advice for when you end up in a situation like that where there's somebody that is maybe using their power to not achieve like a brand goal? It's more like a personal thing? I think you have to be honest. I think you have to be respectful and you have to try to do your best as best as you can. My dad had given me advice once. It was probably the most interesting thing. He had said to me, go to the person directly by yourself and just ask them, will you work with me? And if they say yes, just keep going. And if they say no, then figure out what you want to do. And I had the experience where the person said yes, but they didn't want to. They didn't, they told me yes, but then they wanted to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I think things, for me anyway, I think things worked out okay. But that's a, that's a, uh, that's an integrity issue. The only person's integrity that I have control over is my own. Mm -hmm. And I think even though sometimes things can be conflicting and difficult, if you can look back and say, I was honest, I was respectful, I did what I was supposed to do. 
that's all you can do. It must have been really difficult to do that, to go and talk to somebody and ask them that question that directly. Was that, how was that? Well, it was good because they, their response was positive. Mm-hmm. It was harder when I realized later that they weren't doing what they said. Yeah. You know, for me, I, if someone asked me and I didn't want, I would, I mean, I was pretty, when I was younger, I was pretty, uh, I wasn't afraid of conflict. But I would, if, so if I, if I felt negatively about something, I would, I would tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something about being in the corporate world that I didn't like. I felt really strongly that if someone wasn't performing well, or if somebody had an opinion, a poor opinion or a poor experience, then you tell that person. You take the person aside, you talk to them, you tell them, and you tell them to correct it. Um, and I saw a lot of times where people didn't do that. They they walked around it, or they talked about the person behind their back. Mm-hmm. And then the person might just be um, excommunicated or marginalized. Then they have no opportunity. And seriously, sometimes people are blindsided. They don't know mm-hmm. that they're being perceived a certain way, or that they're expected to do something else other you know, than what they're doing. So yeah, I, I think that, and this probably would go to any kind of industry, you have to be honest, you have to be respectful, and then that's it. You really have no control over the situation. I've definitely seen that happen as well, where I think sometimes people do it, well, because it's, uh, it's uncomfortable to tell somebody directly to their face, you know, I don't think that you're doing a good job. Um, <laughs> But then I think it's actually more detrimental if you if you don't tell them. And like you said, you go behind their back or you start kind of like poisoning the well and telling other people that they're not doing a good job without addressing it directly. And it just, it ends up in a, in a bad situation for everybody. What kind of things have you seen change in the fashion industry over the past 20 or so years? Well, I guess the, the biggest thing is how... Uh how people manufacture things. Um, so a lot of the companies I worked for, because they're big brands, American brands, are, they're manufactured overseas. Uh, different companies are very, uh, feel liable, responsible to work with different countries that are abiding by regulations, right, that protect the workers, that don't employ children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those things are things that are more prominent now than ever. Everybody wants to be using sustainable, ethically responsible products. So there's a lot of buzzwords. I don't know if you can follow through and find all the details and make sure 100% that everything is ethically sustainable. Um, but that is where the industry wants to be. Levi's is probably one of the best people who does it. You know, they've they've been promoting like a waterless program because there's a lot of processing. So they've been trying to reduce the water that they use and they're honest about it. You know, there's an area where that has been um, successfully done, but some of the other products don't have it. So that's promoted as such and the others aren't. So these are the things that are interesting to me because I'm doing leather now, I'm very conscientious of the fact that PETA might hate me one day, but I'm not large enough to be hated yet. Uh-huh. 
But recently I read something where they were talking about the idea of making fake leather and real leather. So the processes of making fake leather are pretty crazy. The consumption of water, the chemicals that are used, the detergents that are the workers and the textile people are exposed to. And then with leather, it's a, it's a whole nother process, right? The concern is the idea that you're killing the animal. Mm-hmm. So you have to take each thing, whether you buy your leather from this place and whatever kind of fake leather or veg leather that you're buying, and you really have to compare every step of the process to every step of the process. Otherwise, you're comparing apples and oranges. So there's there's no way to say, well, if you're using fake leather, it's better for the environment. Not not really. Mm-hmm. And if you're using cow leather, you're you know you're better than those. Maybe it really depends. So there's a lot more awareness in the world about how the clothes get to people and how they're made. That's the biggest thing I think that's happening now. Mm-hmm. So people just need to make sure that they're educating themselves too, and not just kind of assuming just because they hear some buzzwords that yes. they're you know yeah they mean exactly what they think they mean. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, when you when you're one person making your stuff, you have a lot of control, right? I'm not, I'm not causing people to suffer under horrible fumes and cutting their hands and working long hours. But there's definitely things that I've been cautious about. Like a lot of leather uses glue, right? You can't, you have to put the things together before you can sew them. So I've been conscientious about what kind of glue I use. Is it, you know, is it, uh, do I have to be outside? Is it toxic? Is it something that's better for me that was made under better conditions? Um, and we want to recycle things, but not everything is made for recycling. Some things just last forever. So with leather, let's say, or denim, it lasts a super long time. We want to recycle other kinds of things, but there's the idea that something wasn't designed to be recycled. The fabrication, the material doesn't lend itself to that. So you're spending man hours and chemicals and production time trying to make it something else. So there's a lot of little details that I could go on forever about, mm-hmm. you know, in the manufacturing world. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people, I think there's a level of investment people have into how much they care about something. <laughs> I think they want to they want to just see the word like recycled or environmentally, you know, friendly or whatever and then just stop there and be like, "Okay, that's my conscience is clear. I'm going to buy this thing without right. doing the rest of the research." Moving into some of the I mean some of the things that we've been talking about kind of segue into this. You started Silas, your company for leather goods a few years ago. Did you always know that you wanted to do this? I, when I was young, I used to sort of romanticize about having my own company. But I had, that was me, it was my name, Lila Tadros, London, Paris, whatever. I had that. It was a little game I played with myself. And then when I started to work in the fashion industry, I didn't really have that anymore. It was a childhood game for whatever reason. But a friend of mine and I were talking for, I think we were talking about it for a year. We, what if what if you do this or what if you did that? And um, when I was living in Ohio, I was considering what if you were to make an accessories 
brand. And I started to think about it. I started to research a little bit. It was really hard for me to find fabric. And when I say find fabric, like I couldn't find the kinds of fabrics that I wanted to use. I wouldn't be able to buy them in bulk. I would have to buy them from someone and commit to some crazy um, amount. So I moved to leather really for practical purposes. With leather, I could buy small quantities. I could get tons of different colors. I didn't have to uh, invest a lot. I didn't have to buy a lot. And I could change it up. And leather was something that was a skill that I needed to, um, I needed to really learn. I had, I had designed leather jackets in the past, but it's really different when you're working for a company and then you start to do it. So I moved into leather strictly for practical purposes, being able to buy small quantities of goods at, at will. And then I had to learn all sort of the mundane things, how to cut, how to sew, how to make a hole, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all these little things. So I didn't think about Silas the way it is now. I th- used to think of something much more g- glamorous and unrealistic. But I'm really sort of contented at this point where Silas is, what it's turned into. Mm-hmm. How is it? What, what's the biggest thing that's changed from kind of your original, what you thought it might be to now? Well, now I make everything myself because I have no factory. And that is something that should frustrate me, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the reason it doesn't frustrate me is because leather is a very... Uh, specific material uh, if it's mass produced it requires a lot of things that I would have to invest in that I'm not sure I'm willing to the way it's cut the way it's sewn um, and assembled it requires really good skill really good craftsmen and I've only now sort of feel really accomplished in my ability to cut and sew it so I'm happy at this point to say I never went crazy and never demanded a factory produce anything on a large level because I feel like my eyes, my skill has only um, come to this point. But uh, the other thing about leather, I think when people design it, there's sort of two categories. There's really fashion-y category, which most people are in, that we know would see, the stuff that you see in the stores, lots of colors, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a really craftsman uh niche where those are people who have really thick leather it's very masculine they make everything by hand there's a certain technique for it and I'm not either of those people I'm sort of a little bit of both and it really depends on which leather I'm using and what the design is and right now I'm I'm floundering I guess someone might say I'm saying it I'm floundering between those two aesthetics because I don't want to be all that way the fashion way, and I don't want to be the uber craft guy that's like at home, a hobbit with his huge mm-hmm. needles, you know, uh-huh. sewing these um, things. Because there's people out there who are great at that. So I'm sort of somewhere in between, and I'm, I'm still happy to explore what that is. And I'd like Silas to land right in the middle, where there's the elements of that incredible niche of craft, and then a small uh, reference to color and a little bit of fashion, but I don't want to be the person who's, oh, purple, oh, the next year's green. I don't want to do that. 
What's one of the biggest challenges you had starting your own company? The, the challenge is finding your resources. Where am I buying my stuff? Um, is it going to be consistent? Are they going to be consistent? Cost is a challenge. And then production. How am I going to make this? Selling to me is always going to be challenging because I already told you, I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> so selling to me is really challenging. I like, you know, when you sell something like a product, there's nobody there. The person has to like the thing and determine that it's worth spending the money and there's nobody standing behind it going, hey, let me tell you a story. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, the storytelling is a little challenging, even though I think I could tell a good story. I don't always want to. <laughs> it's the little introverted kid still in me. So those those are things that are challenging. And I expect that they will always be. But I also feel like that's that's good. That's what makes it exciting. If it all came so quick and easy, then maybe I might not try hard. And I want to keep trying hard because I feel like that's what makes it exciting. Um, the other thing I just want to say is because I don't have a factory, I don't commit to one th- one or two items. I'm in a unique position right now where I can play. And when I say play, I can experiment with stuff. So I'm halfway through making something, I could change my mind and make it another way. And I feel like designing like that right now has really made the product better. Have you come across any like happy accidents where you're working on something and then it takes a little bit different direction than you originally planned on? Yeah, a lot. Because typically, I think in the past, I would draw something, and that's still great. Usually would draw something, draw 15 of them, and then make a determination, okay, I'm going to make that one. A lot of the time now, because it's leather, and I keep trying different things, or buying different leathers, when I get the leather, I'm like, I play with the leather. Is this leather better to be a tote? Is it better to be something super simple? Is it better to have some extra construction in it? So happy accidents definitely happen, and the leather usually tells me what to do. What would you tell young artists that are interested in going into like the fashion design space? Put pride aside. <laughs> Put uh-huh. your pride aside and listen. I think that's a big thing. I think it's I think it's a thing that stumbles us. Mm. And it takes a while because you don't even maybe recognize that there's pride in the way. We're so programmed, especially with uh, social media and everybody wanting to put their best version of themselves available for everybody to see, that I think we spend so much time, even when people are like talking, thinking about what's the thing that I can say that's going to make me look like a genius. Hey, I wanted to look like a genius. I still do. But the thing is, is that, you know, probably at age 25, no, (laughs) there wasn't a lot of genius coming out of me. There was good work, but I think I was, I think I was an arrogant kid. I definitely was an arrogant, cocky kid. I was good at what I did, but I still, I needed to calm down, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) So that would be your, your advice to your young, your young that self? That would be my advice to my young. Calm down. <laughs> Don't be cocky. 
If you're interested in viewing or purchasing some of Lila's handmade leather accessories, you can find her at silasltd.com and on Instagram at silasltd. If you'd like to learn more about The Creative Struggle, you can visit my website at thecreativestruggle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>